Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? These four words, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. In my work, often this whole world of diversity is called those four things. Sometimes it's called other things. Sometimes it's the words are in a different combination. And I have realized that I believe that the most important words in that sequence, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, are the last two, the inclusion and belonging. Because if everyone is included by its very nature, then we have diversity. And if everyone has the experience of belonging, one cannot really feel that they belong if they don't also have agency, if they don't also have access to power. And so then that gets to the equity piece of it. And so I've been thinking a lot about really pointing my work at the inclusion and belonging part of it, which brings me right to my guest for today, who may have some thoughts around this frame. So Dr. Sasha Joseph Matthews is the Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of the Pacific. And she is also the owner and principal consultant for Joseph Matthews Consulting. Welcome, Sasha. Hi, Janine. I'm so happy to be here. So excited to have our discussion. Looking forward to a really interesting 45 minutes hour for us to kind of talk about these issues and dig deep about them. Great. So let's get going. I'm going to start the way that I often start with guests. So what is something that you have become aware of that people are not paying attention to, either intentionally or unintentionally? And then what's the cost of that? Yeah, I would say that for very long, America was focused on diversity, 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 right? And I use the analogy, diversity is inviting people to the dance. Yes. And so we were really caught up in who do I have at the dance? Like, who did I send an invitation to? Who responded to my invitation? Who showed up, right? With very little consideration for once we get them there, (laughs) What what are we doing? What are we doing? And I think there is a huge cost to creating institutions, 
creating organization, creating spaces where you have a ton of diversity, but people do not feel as if their voice is being heard. And not mm-hmm. only is their voice not being heard, but at an equal level. Yeah. And I think that is a huge cost. And so we know that absenteeism, low morale, dissatisfaction with my work, dissatisfaction with my organization, high turnover, all of these are kind of byproducts of us not paying attention to what it means. And particularly in California, right? Particularly in California, we have the second most diverse state in the U.S., second only to Hawaii. So we have in any unit, any department, we have, we could look around, we have gender, race, ethnicity, able, you know, all kinds of sexual orientation, all kinds of diversity. And yet no one is talking about unconscious bias. No, you know, how many companies have unconscious bias training that is mandatory? Right. And then, so we're not necessarily doing those trainings. And even if we're doing those trainings, those trainings don't necessarily get to that space where I feel included and I feel like I belong. So to use the analogy and carry it to another level, diversity is inviting me to the dance. Inclusion is me knowing that someone is going to ask me to dance. (laughs) Right? Right? Yes. Belonging, though, is knowing that I'm going to hear my jam. Mm. right because someone could ask me to dance and in my case they're playing alternative rock and I'm gonna say okay so you know <laughs> I like you or whatever but I'm not dancing to I don't want to dance to this right? so for me how many places how many spaces are thinking about the fact that you're inviting all these people but you're not playing music that they like to dance to right and then there's the equity piece where I know that you are going to ask me to plan the dance. Mm-hmm. I'm not just, I know and I expect that. And so I'm planning in my mind how I'm going to be involved in this. So with the equity piece, we're removing the barriers where we have to invite someone. No, 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 I'm involved. I'm in the planning committee. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I think these are the things that I really think about in the business school at Abahat where I am, when I'm talking to organizations through the work I do in my consultancy, because we know the cost. So the cost, and then there's another component that we're going to get into in a bit, but it costs Americans, I think it's like 54 billion with a B in right. 2020 for high absenteeism. You know, all these things, there's a cost because people yeah. are leaving the organization, right? Right. Over the last five years, it's cost us 172 billion with a B. And a lot of times it's not a cost organizations are even recognizing that they are paying, right? right? right. I was listening to a talk one time and, and the woman who was giving this speech, she said that between that point where you're like, you know what, this is for the birds. <laughs> and the point where they hire someone to replace you and they have ramped up production, between right. that point where you're just like, I don't give her anymore. And you go down in productivity, you increase in absenteeism, and then you leave. And then there's no one and the costs of recruiting and hiring someone and then training them. And then them ramping up to optimal productivity. That's a year's salary. Yeah. But then there's another cost. And this is what, you know, recently I've been having this discussion about. There's this other cost of not realizing potential earnings Mm -hmm. that I could have. If I had been more inclusive. Yep. So 
you know, my generation, I'm an exa. And I think boomers and exes, when you speak to marginalized individuals, so like myself, right, I have always worked in an environment where I am probably the only black person in that unit mm. since I've been in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I am, I'm existing in that space. It's, it's a little bit harder for me because I didn't grow up kind of learning how it is to exist in this space, right? So that's a little bit <laughs> right. harder that I'm not seeing anyone that looks like me, not hearing anyone that speaks like me. That's a little bit more taxing on my consciousness. But I think as you evolve, right? So you're, you're now working, you're in this corporate space and you're the only one of one. You look around and as you go up the corporate ladder, you're the only one of one. It becomes, the air gets thinner and thinner. thinner. And thinner. Yes, it does. And you say, and that's anyone, that's that's sexual orientation, that's nationality, that's gender, that's color and, you know, ethnicity and race. And you start saying to yourself, is this really what I want to be doing with my life, right? right. Code switching, feeling culturally isolated. Mm-hmm. And then you, at some point you have to say, what is this cost? Like, what is it worth to the stress that I am experiencing? And a lot of extremely bright, but my generation, we've been kind of culturized. Got to just suck it up. Right. Got to suck it up and revel in the blessing that you have been given this opportunity and that you're the only one and look how well you've done. But can I tell you, millennials and Zias are like, yeah, this is for the yeah, birth. No. <laughs> so hey. I'm going, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to take this knowledge that I now have and I'm going to funnel it into my pocket value, not into benefiting somebody else. And I've seen this with so many expert professionals mm-hmm. that they have now taken away. And by the way, we know that exes, sorry, Zias and millennials are much more likely to shop at places and engage with companies that hire folks that look like them. Right. Okay. And or have diverse staff. So even if I myself don't consider myself to be from a marginalized group, I want to shop or engage in purchases from an organization that does hire people from a diverse group. Yep. And so the organization is losing out, not only because they are missing out from that person's expertise and knowledge and all of these things and perspective, just so we are clear, because in each room, they're one of one, right? So they're coming with a perspective that's pretty unique but they're also missing out on the opportunity to tap into these these clients that perhaps differ from themselves. Right, to have a a broader customer base. Right, because look at what the U.S. population is going to look like. (laughs) In California, we're almost there. So 2025 in California, more brown folks than majority white folks, right? So we're almost there in California. But the number that people date is 2050 for the rest of the United States. So you're going to reach a point where you're going to need diverse consumers. Right. Not just want diverse consumers. <laughs> you're going to be successful, right? If you're going to be successful, you're going to have to think outside of the box. And so it's, I say it's similar to kind of the University of Phoenix phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. For a long time, working adults were like, yeah, it'll be cool to have a continuing ed program where, you know, we have some programs for working out, but our bread and butter are high schoolers who, you know, want to come back. So we have degree completion. Yeah, that's nice. But, and then you get to a point where somebody recognizes there are enough people out there to have an entire school and that's all we do. Right. 
And there is a lot of money in this space. And everybody else is like, oh, crap, yeah. We should have thought about that, right? We should, we should get in that space. We should get in that right. space. <laughs> Even though for years, they were like, yeah, we have yeah. these folks over here that we should focus on. So I think right. it is, that's really what we're talking about. I love your frame. I, I love your frame for so many things. <laughs> but I really love the way that, you know, what you're talking about here is not just we are here in this great resignation. And in order to have uh, quality employees, we need to be diverse. I have a client that is a law firm that is, in fact, very diverse. And they have realized that they have to have some active programs that are happening that they can be speaking about around diversity to be able to recruit and to some degree retain, but really to recruit top talent. So, you know, we're talking about that, but we're also talking about as an organization to position us for future success, for success like, you know, future meaning tomorrow and future success over the next 10, 15, 30 years, to have a diverse organization, to have diverse employees means we have that lived experience that is different. We have that educational attainment that is different. We have that background that is different. And that is going to lead to better decision-making because you've got many more perspectives that are part of the decision. It's going to lead to better brand positioning because you can think more about what many different kinds and types and ways of sorting humans, many different people would be interested in consuming. And then you're going to be able to reach those consumers because they have that like me affinity. They can see themselves in your organization. And I was talking with somebody earlier today who's interested in taking on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and who said, you know, but there's so much actual work we need to get done. How do we make time for these initiatives? How do I make time to talk with my employees, to listen to my people, to engage in conversations around like, really, how are you doing? Not just what did you do over the weekend, but like, really, how are you how do you make time for that in the face of all of the things that we need to get done? And my answer was, well, how much time are you spending on organizational nonsense that could be much, you know, that would not be an issue if your people were much more engaged, if your people were much more productive, if you weren't churning and burning through your people so that you've got to replace them at the cost of a full year's salary. I had never heard it put that way. And I thought that that was brilliant in your laying out of that. So I love that you're bringing in all of these different perspectives. And, you know, as the assistant dean at the University of the Pacific, you have an opportunity to engage with not only students now, but returning students and students who have graduated and with whom you are still connected and you get to 
have a much broader understanding of the dynamics in the workplace today. So I would love it if you would, you know, expound upon upon any of that or or anything that I said that makes you think of something else. So I want to talk a little bit about how a diverse workforce is going to need nurturing in a different way. Please. To a non-diverse workforce. Yes. Because I think what what I often, I often joke about when I do my seminars, I say to people, you know, years ago, someone said to me, I just wish these young people would have some common sense. And and I started (laughs) off a lot of my diverse work (laughs) looking at generational diversity, right? So that's why I started off in that space. And because I was teaching customer service and there was, it was right at that time where we were getting all these millennials into the space and boomers were losing their minds and exes were like, what about me? And it was, it was, so I was really, my job was really to calm down the boomers, right? Yes, right, exactly. Okay, here's what's happening, relax, right? But one of the things that really kind of struck me was how millennials saw the world so very differently. Yeah. And they needed very different things than boomers did before that. Yep. And if we continued to see the world the same way, despite the fact that our entire group around us was seeing the world a completely different way, (laughs) we would not be able to successfully engage with our employees, right? Yes. And so I always joke because one time I had a student and she was working in this office on campus and I went, I had a meeting with her boss and I came there and I said, hey, I'm, you know, I have a meeting with Jennifer. And so Rebecca was like, okay, professor. And Jennifer, Rebecca then texts Jennifer, right? <laughs> <And> <laughs> literally outside the office of Jennifer and she mm-hmm. texts Jennifer. And so I'm telling the story and, and people are like, see, that's laziness. Look at that. And I, so I say to Rebecca, okay, Rebecca, break it down for me. Why you felt you needed to text Jennifer instead of getting up and knocking on her door. And she says to me, why would I get up and knock on her door? <laughs> Just like really matter of fact, right? And I'm right. like, why wouldn't you? And she's like, well, if I knock on her door, maybe she's in a meeting and I'm going to disturb her. It requires me to get up and knock on her door. Yes, which is the part that I don't necessarily want to do. And maybe you're focusing on that. But instead, how about we focus on if I text her, then she gets to respond on her time. I'm not interrupting her meeting. She still knows, which is the whole purpose of me getting up and knocking on the door that I am here, right? Right. So why do I have to do it your way? Mm-hmm. Why does your way make it right? Why is your way better? Right. Why is your way better? And I really, I really had to think about that. And I said, you're absolutely right. My way is only better because more people agree with me that my way is better. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, right? Well, people in the older generations agree with there you. you go. There right. you go. There you go. So yeah. as we have folks designing packages to attract new employees and they're focusing on retirement benefits, And the new employees are like, yeah, I'm going to be with your organization like two, three years. I don't care about retirement. It's not going to touch me. Right. And instead, I would love it if you all would talk about loan repayment. Right. Right. But the organization, yeah, no, we're not interested in loan repayment. But then the organization is upset that they can't attract millennials. So you see what I'm saying? So what we know is that diverse organizations outperform homogenous organizations significantly, significantly. Right. 35%. Yes. 
Yes. And it co-opted in the 40-something percentile in certain industries even. Right. And we know almost any kind of diversity, gender diversity, race and ethnicity, almost any kind, because we're infusing. And people often say, but what about diversity of thought? And I say to folks who say that to me, an easy way to get diversity of thought is to bring in people of color. <laughs> very, easy, very easy way to get diversity of color. And show me an organization that is treating black and brown people well. And I will show you an organization that is treating folks with disabilities well. I'm an organization that is doing well on the LGBTQ employees and customers. So what we know is the intersectionality is real, right? The intersectionality is real. But I think often we really get caught up into the way that we are doing things, mm-hmm. that it is the right way to do things. And as we go to these diverse organizations, we're not going to be able to keep doing things the way that we've always been doing because we're going to have people challenge that process, that principle. Right. And there is going to be some angst. So we know that what, even though diversity teams outperform non-diverse teams, there is still conflict. And we have to kind of jump over that hurdle of conflict and get past that to see and maximize that performance. But when we jump over that, when we are all on the same page and we're understanding each other and we're working in sync, we do amazing things. (laughs) You know, we do amazing things. And I even see it in when I'm in my classroom, the more people I'm engaging, the more perspectives I get, the richer the conversations. So I think we, this idea of common sense comes out of a commonality. Mm-hmm. And so as we broaden that commonality, mm-hmm. we're going to have to broaden our sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's going to be a little bit painful because we're going to be like, I, you know, what, what? first of all, we're going to have a communication. <laughs> Dissonance, right? right? Because I speak one way, like my husband's always saying to me, can you use your inside voice? Like, I have no inside voice. I'm a professor. I have no inside voice. This is how it's right. And so for some people, that's annoying. Like you're too loud. So we're going to need to get comfortable with things that we are not necessarily comfortable with. Right. And the other thing is this, this idea of realities is that, you know, so I often joke with my students. I talk to them about when we're talking about marketing, what is a family? Mm. What does a family look like? And depending mm-hmm. where in the world you are, then that family looks different. And in some places, the family looks like a nuclear mom, dad, 2.5 kids with the, you know, 0.5 dogs, right? <laughs> but in some places, that's two dads. In some places, that's two moms. In some places, that's a mom, a dad, and two tias, right? As a mom, dad, and... Your abuela. Abuela, right? So we have to really kind of think about... As we are bringing people from different realities, what are the stresses? Mm-hmm. What are what should the insurance plan look like? Right, all of these things that people are not really thinking about as they mm-hmm. embrace diversity. But what are the needs that our employees have, and how can we? Because you, if I am in an environment where everybody has a tier living with them, mm-hmm. then as we come up in a workspace, then we think about the TO and we think, right, about what your family is. Right. So we're still not there. If everybody is, you know, I often joke about working moms Mm -hmm. and that America's school system was designed for stay-at-home moms. Right. And if you look at 
times of PTA meetings, if you look at the fact that most schools don't have after school care, right? If right. you you start breaking it, late start, what is this late start? Who's who's <laughs> at home for a nine o'clock late start? You, you, you see right. them so, so many things, but no one In is- In a way, for young that. children, homework is designed. Like a lot of homework is designed so that parents have to be involved. Right. And if you have parents- Maybe you have one parent, maybe you have four parents, but if you have parents who are actively working, you know, they're going to get home from work and be tired. The last thing they're going to want to do is more work and have to remember like, okay, so what the hell was algebra? And this common core again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I really think as we think about this conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I really want us to kind of think about what are we not considering yeah. as it pertains, coming back to that analogy, now that we have all these different people at the dance, are we still playing our music? Right. And we don't think about, you know, what other kinds of music we might want to think play at the dance. How do we come up with the guest lists when we are designing these diapers? So do we have- What does do the food we, look like? What does the food <laughs> look like? Right? What kind of beverages are we serving? Everything. Everything right. must be reimagined. So you cannot just bring people into these spaces without considering have the needs of the organization's employees changed. Mm-hmm. And I started off seeing the tolerance level is also very different, right? So I know, like we talked about boomers, excess, we were kind of culturized to stay, work hard, earn our dues. Shut up. Shut up. Yep. But now I have young people saying to me, Professor, I went into the space and that man spoke to me crazy. So I was like, I had to let him know this right. is not going to work. And, you know, I asked my boss, what are they going to do about it? And they didn't have a plan. So I left. Yeah. Simple. Or I got in trouble for telling that person that he was speaking crazy to me. And I said that I will not stand for that. And then I got reprimanded. Right. Right. I checked him. Which, yeah. you know, I believe that people who are out of pocket need to be solidly checked. Right. And as you could imagine from this conversation, <laughs> I am not afraid to check them either. <laughs> but but then what is involved in that, right? Because you check enough people, then you start getting a reputation. And then, right. oh, you see, so we have right. to- Right, now you're a problem and a bitch. There, there you go. There right. you go. So we have to, so many Black women talk to me about- People say out-of-pocket things to me, Sasha. And I now have to think about how am I going to address it? What can I see to me? So, you know, because we have no one even thinking, oh, what I just said was kind of out-of-pocket. Right. Because in right. my world, that's okay, right? right. So, right. you know, like there, there are things, my husband is Black and he made a comment the other day, he and I were watching TV And he made a comment about a black woman. And if he were a black woman and I were a black woman, I might have been fine with his comment about this woman who was on the TV. But because I am a white woman and he's a man, Mm -hmm. I found his comment incredibly offensive. Mm -hmm. And so then we had this really 
interesting conversation. And he was talking about, well, he'd been talking with a black coworker who's a woman who had used that word referencing other women. You probably have a hunch about maybe what that word might be. And she was a larger woman. And I said, you know, well, maybe in that context, it's fine. I don't feel great about it even in that context, but that's not my context. Right. So right, I don't right. get to say whether or not I think it's okay right. in that context. What I'm talking about is you and I are sitting here in the living room and you used a word as a man mm-hmm. and I heard it as a woman and I am not down with that. That is not okay with me. You do not, not get to refer to women that way, whatever race they are. Right. You know, and so this idea around cultural norms and the different cultural norms that exist within different groups. And one of the things I think that's such an important idea. And so, like, how do we honor that? How do we, what is the appropriate role for code switching? Is it ever appropriate? In what situations is it cool, fine, kosher, great? to speak in one way and in what situations might we need to alter that. The other thing that I'm really interested in as a white woman who works in this space of diversity, equity, and inclusion is there's so much completely justifiable anger among Black women at white women for being poor allies in the struggle. And I would assume adversary ally this weekend. Yes. Adversary ally. Ooh. Yes. And it really, it was a term that the individual who spoke it was referring to white women in that yeah. moment. Yep. Yes. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want no, to know no. about that. That's the term. Right? When you said that, I got a feeling in my body of that. And so like I'm, and There's things that are said to Black women that are exactly the same things that are said to Latino women, to white women, to Asian women. It's something that is said to women. And if I'm looking through the lens of I am a Black woman, or I am a Latina woman, or I am an Asian woman, or I am a transgender woman, or I'm a white woman, or, you know, whatever the lens is that I'm looking through, I might think this is happening because I am a blank woman as opposed to this is happening because I am a woman. And so I'm really interested in thinking about how, as a white woman in this space, I can help create, facilitate some word in that domain, a conversation that obviously isn't a one thing, but a conversation around how white women can honor, own, apologize, whatever else is needed, and then begin to create a space for healing of those deep wounds, and then begin to create bridges forward. Is one of the things that I'm really concerned about, and I know Lots of people, regardless of gender or race or educational attainment or ethnicity, sexual orientation, who do this work are worried about is that this is going to be yet another moment in time where some things happened 
some work got created and then we were done with that next chapter and so it's important to me that 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 conversation happen both because it needs to happen there is harm that has been caused that needs to be owned and apologized for and healing that needs to happen and bridges forward that need to be created because if we stay here in this place of harm and pain we will create yet another moment that that some things happened and nothing eventually changed i think trust yeah is the first thing that comes to mind because and then ownership yep is the second because i think even in folks who want to be allies there could be this feeling of well how can we move past it yeah <laughs> how can we just move let's just move past it. it's a moving through though but it is the wound is so deep right and it is not an old wound and i think this is something that we really need to own and recognize it is not an old wound that has healed that we remember and we just we just commensurate on remember when that pain happened right it is then we could move past it it's a it's a current wound current yeah. and it's deep and so we really have to be thoughtful about addressing how the wound happened Mhm. How we can help with the healing and we have to really work to build trust between the allies. Yeah. Because black women in particular have endured so much pain without being able to communicate the extent of that pain. Right. And we have endured pain through our children, we have endured pain through our men, we have endured pain ourselves through our bodies. and there seems to be a lack of true appreciation of how deep that has run for black women yeah and then there's white fragility on top of it i don't you know let's not underestimate white fragility right, and right. the role it plays here whether we're talking about the weaponizing of tears or we're talking about people's feelings or whatever right? because as you know i was listening to a podcast and the woman said why don't black women get to have feelings <laughs> our tears. Why why are our tears for our sons and our daughters not heard at the same level as white women's tears? Right. So I think the trust between women. Mm-hmm. And I you know I could say because you mentioned, you know, the black woman. But I can tell you often talking to a lot of black women, they feel race before they feel gender. Mm-hmm. They feel race before they feel gender because sometimes gender issues don't hit black women exactly the same way. Right. So, you know, like if I'm in a room and somebody and I say something and somebody else repeats it, who's a man? I'm not letting that slide. Yeah. Most black women will not let it slide. Right. A lot of white women would and be right. upset about it. Do you, do right. you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. Gender piece hits us differently. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not there. that it's it's definitely there but it hits us differently so i think we have to be also aware. and at the same time that it, that we talk about that i've had conversations with white women where they are just bitching and complaining about the gender piece 
Mm-hmm. And I bring up the race piece and they're dismissive of the race piece. Mm-hmm. Just as they were just talking about the gender piece, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think there's so, again, so many wounds. But at the nexus of all of this, at the, you know, the root of all of this is how much trust do we have, Janine, between yeah. us? You as a black woman, me as a, you as a white woman, me as a black woman. <laughs> <laughs> how much trust do we have between us? And how can we tap into that trust as we try to heal? So how do I know that you're coming at me with a genuineness of, of spirit, with an authenticity that I can believe? How much of it is performative? How much of it I believe is performative for right. your own benefit? Right? We have to, let's be real. We, right. we, we have to have those conversations and we have to be open to have those conversations. Right. Yeah. And then I mean, it's link and start. Yeah. Yeah, it's back to what you were pointing to in the beginning. It's that getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. We get to, you know, if we are serious about having a diverse workforce, if we are serious about honoring people's lived experiences, if we are serious about figuring out how to have a world in which people of all kinds of different backgrounds have equity and are included and really have the experience of belonging, then whoever the people are who currently hold the power have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable and take ownership of why they should be uncomfortable. Right. And I think don't underestimate the impact of how uncomfortable we have been. <laughs> right. For a long time. Right. You know, it, it's kind of like it's my turn to be, <laughs> to be <laughs> uncomfortable. Right. I mean, you have been, and people who look like you have been uncomfortable walking out the front door. You were yes, immediately everybody. in a state of heightened awareness of, you know, where does the danger lie, of how am I going to present, of can I say this thing, of, you know, I'm constant awareness and constant lack of comfort walking through the world because of my whiteness having nothing to do with anything else, because I happen to be born into a body that presents as white, I got to be comfortable in a lot of situations. And so it's my turn. It is. And let me tell you, as an immigrant coming from a predominantly black and brown country, yep. that discomfort was new to me. Right. It was new to me. I was not accustomed to being anxious when I heard sirens behind me. That was learned. I was not accustomed to being judged by the color of my skin as opposed to the content of my character, right? Like that was new to me. And can I tell you, I'm not loving this discomfort. (laughs) I'm not. Uh No. So I am, you know, I'm very clear from having been in a comfortable state, (laughs) coming into an uncomfortable state. And now I have my kids here. My husband is you know, born here, raised here. It takes some getting used to, let me tell you, that discomfort. Right. 
and I have been in a predominant, you know, I'm, I'm a professor, so I'm not <laughs> down in the trenches, right? In an extremely racist environment. But I often, you know, to use the analogy, I often say, if you're driving down the street and somebody cuts you off, you're like, what's up with that, right? You're not, most people are not ratting and raving <laughs> after one person cuts them off. Right. Here comes another and another and another. By the 14th person, I want a big truck and a helmet. And I'm just going <laughs> to ram people off the road, right? That's the space that I'm in at that point. But guess right. what? That 14th person is they're like, what's up with you, right? Because you're still the, first, they're person, the first person to them. They're the first person they cut off for today. So right. they're like, I'm not a serial cut offer, right? Why are you going to so upset with me? Like, right? But it doesn't matter that they're not a serial cut because my experiences, I'm up to here with people cutting me off at this point. Right. And so a lot of us, a lot of my white colleagues are feeling like that 14 person. Like, I didn't spend my life cutting people off. Like I'm being blamed for all of this. Why, what, you know? And I'm just like, you're the 14 person in the last days. So deal. <laughs> right. Which is for a white person, it can be a hard place to stand. Yes. And we get to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because I mean, ultimately, if we think about empathy, mm-hmm. that it is that experience of not like, oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry for you over there. That's sympathy and a little bit icky. Empathy is feeling what you're feeling with you. And in order to do that, I have to get uncomfortable. You have to. And in in my mind, I get to. I mean, it is in fact a privilege and an honor to get to do this work in the way that I get to do this work. And it is a privilege and an honor to get to be with people in those experiences and get to look at, okay, maybe I was the 14th person who did it, but I still did it. And, you know, I still cut you off. I still shut you down. I still took your idea. I still did whatever it is that I did. I talk about the fact that my family is from the South and has been in the South of this country since the 1700s. And so did they own slaves? I don't know the answer to that question. My hunch is probably somebody did. Mm. And so I get to own that now in 2022. And I get to have feelings of guilt and uncomfortableness and shame about that. And shame is a place from which we cannot take action. And so then what can I do to transform that into being with people whose ancestors were harmed by my ancestors and honor that experience and honor that injustice that then carried through the generations and generational trauma is a real real thing. It's real. It's real. It's real. (laughs) And so, you know, how can I, as a person who spent 
19 years working for social justice organizations before founding my own business. How can I still honor that harm that was created by people whose then privilege I inherited? And it's not easy and it is critically important. And so, you know, I think, I think we all, regardless of our gender, our ethnicity, our skin color, our educational attainment, our gay, straight, cisgender, transgender, able-bodied, disabled-bodiedness, we all get to be in this together. And we all get to be uncomfortable and some of us get to be more uncomfortable than others because it's our turn. Yes. Yes. Well... This has been an amazing. It's been a great hour. I can't believe it's been a whole hour. It's just the time just went like that, huh? I know. We may need to create this as a series and come back and do this regularly because this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Dr. Sasha Joseph Matthews, thank you so much for your brilliance for your lived experience, for your willingness to speak truths that must be spoken to power and to to non-power and for your stewardship of the next generation that is coming into the workforce. Thank you for who you are and how you be and what you do. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. And this has been an amazing hour. And I look forward to coming back and talking the more next about one. <laughs> the cost of not paying attention. Uh, uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Janine. You're welcome. I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Anxiety.